0: Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Mon, how are you doing today?
1: I'm all right. It's a lovely foggy day in London. You
0: know? Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. We, we really appreciate it. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in?
1: Uh, sure. So I'm a recovering hedge fund manager, so I spent most of my career making rich people richer. Um, Over the last few years, I decided to make the world a better place. So when I was a hedge fund manager, I used to focus on emerging markets, uh, video games, and AI. And that was a lot of fun. Um, And what I've really tried to do over the last few years is to bring that all together to make an impact. So one of the key things is the education initiative where we're teaching kids literacy and numeracy in refugee camps and other places in 13 months and one hour a day. And over the last few years, it's all been about artificial intelligence. First off, um, being lead architect of a United Nations-backed COVID AI initiative, and then building stability over the last year to make sure the future of AI is open and free, and it unlocks all our collective potential. Nice, small mission.
0: Very cool. I, I love that. Can you talk about what stability is and why it's important?
1: So I kind of looked to the future and the AI that was coming this transformer-based foundational model AI that's getting to human levels. And I was like, that's cool. You know, it's going to be amazing. But then I realized it can only come from big companies and it would be closed. And web two, as it were, the classic web, it was AI taking advantage of our attention everywhere. Right. We were the product. That's why it was great. Right. I was like, holy oh, crap, this is going to be much worse. We need to a have something open so we can have our own AIs and it needs to not be big models, but reusable models. And B, wouldn't it be cool if it actually reflects the diversity of humanity as opposed to, you know, all this AI ethic stuff about models that don't recognize black people because they're only trained on white people or like dispensing things. Like what if we could actually make AI diverse and open? It's got so powerful, it can really advance us as a race and help fix some of this broken stuff that things us because society is just chaos. So I was like, what's the opposite of chaos? Stability. Let's call it that. And let's get people from all around the world to build cool stuff.
0: That's great. That's great. Uh, and you just released a, a product, which has been really cool. We've been using it uh, here in Narratives to, to generate some art. It's been it's, it's it's been great. Can you talk a little bit about the product you just released, uh, Open Onto the Web?
1: Yeah. So there's this thing about models and products. So Stable Diffusion is the model itself. It's a collaboration that we did with a whole bunch of people and we kind of spear led. We took 100,000 gigabytes of images and compressed it to a two-gigabyte file that can recreate any of those and iterations of those. I like to call it a trillion images in your pocket. Yeah. Uh, it runs on a MacBook M1 or anything like that. It's the first truly global text-to-image model that's good. Um, so it's fast enough, good enough, and I'd say cheap enough because we run it over hardware. But the whole ecosystem can build around this. So that was kind of our wedge products. And then we've got audio and video and other things coming but we think this will make a big difference.
2: So can we talk a little bit about the openness aspect of it? Um, I want to later in this, in this conversation, dig into some of the controversies too, and just meet them head on. But let's start with the open aspect. You know, there's currently for people who haven't been following the AI art train, you have, um, what, what, what is it? OpenAI's product, which is Dolly. Um, and then you have um, Google's product. I forget what they call it. I don't mention. think there's even like a, a Yeah, I don't think anyone can even use it. They just have written a paper about it. And then there's some other lesser models out there. Uh, There's also Mid Journey, which was was quite impressive. And then there's your stuff. Those are the ones I'm aware of. And can you talk a little bit about why you specifically decided to make yours open, what you mean by open, and how that contrasts with some of the other models that are out there?
1: Yeah, so my team over the last 18 months have been building up the AI art scene. So the models that underline MidJourney and Wombo and all of these other things are actually from my team. We released them MIT, open source, so anyone can use it without attribution or anything like that, because they were fantastic and they could do really descriptive art, but by themselves they weren't good enough to do potentially challenging art, shall we say, or images. The models have got to the point now where they can basically do photorealism and things like that. So in the release of this model, that's also much, much faster, uh, and we wanted to put out to the world. We had to have some special considerations around usage. This is one of the reasons that Google hasn't released their model, Dali is Behind a Wall, which is, sure, it can do amazing things in that it gives you wings as an artist. It's like a freaking motorcycle for the mind. It's like letting you paint. But then, what if people use it for bad things? And this has been a whole ethics debate focused on bad rather than good. And it's a complex one. Like, you know, what if people use it for bad things? Because it's good enough. So, in the release of this, it's not a classical open source model. Instead, it's a public release model with a range of mitigations, such as a bad stuff classifier that's there by default and an ethical use policy. So, it's public release and anyone can use it. But it's not truly like you can use it for anything. Obviously, you shouldn't use it for anything illegal, anything unethical. But our view was that by releasing this, so anyone could take it and extend it, provided they stick with the license, it would spark a wave of creativity around the world because there's nothing like being able to develop new experiences on your own computer without any specialist hardware. And again, it was a big effort to get it down to that. It's nothing like being able to create something that is striking. You know, like Robin Williams says, Legolas or a Tesla Roadster right. in the style of Starry Nights. It can do that and understand that. So our view is very different because, you know, we have a different approach to what is beneficial, what is right, and what is open versus a big tech company, which is a lot more cautious, you know? Uh, And again, our focus is on unlocking potential in a reasonable and ethical way.
2: Right. So what are some of those um, reasonable restrictions you talk about that... You have, you have fewer restrictions than OpenAI, but you still have some. So w- w- what is an example of things I'm not allowed to do with stable diffusion? Um, and I mean that in the legal sense, not in the sense that I can download your model and remove the NSFW filter.
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's this question between legality, morality and ethics, right? And they kind of right. So legality, you're not allowed to do anything illegal full stop. Government will come after you, right? Um, right. Right. Morality, But I mean, that,
2: that, that, that goes without saying, like, if I create, you know, some class of images that's illegal in my country, like, the police will just enforce that. You don't have to enforce that.
1: Yeah, but I mean, some of the pushback we've been getting is what if people use this to create hate crime images or illegal stuff? And the classical thing of open source is that you don't kind of restrict it because the assumption is people will use it legally. It is another tool like Photoshop, which you can also use to create this. But this is particularly pertinent because of the speed, and so there is a question: like, is it ethical to release something that can create bad stuff at speed? Our view is that the good stuff is far beyond that. And again, there are ethical use restrictions beyond the legality, but we also specifically mention the legality of this. You know, um, but it's not a straightforward or simple thing. The ethical and moral side is a little bit different because, you know, in France you can have topless ladies, in India you definitely can't. How do you adapt to the different things? So rather than having a giant filter and deciding what is ethical and what isn't, what's moral and isn't, as opposed to legality, which is separate, we took just a snapshot of the internet. So one of the ways I describe this is a generative search engine. Like when you go on Google Images and you type in a search, you're doing it for a purpose to get that image back. This can generate any image from a scrape of the internet, which is biased and does have not safe for work and other things. And it's up to you how you use it. We're very big on personal agency and kind of usage, whereas a lot of the big tech companies are a lot more paternalistic in that they're concerned about the downstream impacts for ethical and business reasons as well. Um, this model was also released by the University of Heidelberg Compass team, who are academic partners, who were one of the leads on this. Um, and so it falls under European legislation. And then we are a UK-based company, which falls under UK legislation. <laughs> and then people are using it for all around the world, which falls under different legislations. There is the model itself, and then there are implementations of it, like Dream Studio, where you're not allowed to create not safe for work and it's got a separate kind of policy. The reality is that this is an emerging field that's happening so fast that we don't have all the answers. One of the things we wanted to do is broaden the conversation in particular. So people could both create amazing things. There were restrictions and guardrails, uh, legally, um, and then it kind of goes beyond that. Finally, as part of the open rail creative ML license that we put it with. You have to include the license if you use it or if you show it to end users. Stating to them that they do have this ethical responsibility and reminding them this is a very powerful tool. That's a bit not normal and there is a legal obligation. Although the likelihood of being enforced, it's going to be complicated to find a fine. Instead, we call out people in public. We don't put it. And usually they put it afterwards because it's not an onerous thing. Um, but again, it's just like you have a powerful tool. Please use it responsibly.
2: What about... Um... The, so, so you made it, you know, much more open than the existing things, although it doesn't fall in the technical definition of open source. So there's this other notion with these big models that are trained on these huge data sets. So I can run stable diffusion on my machine, but I can't train, you know, bajillions of images on my machine. Um, so how much of a barrier is that? Like that, that seems like a technical barrier to making it available to just every Joe Schmo. But how... what what do you think of that barrier? Will it come down? And what have your efforts been in that regard?
1: No, I mean, every Joe Schmo can actually use it. And if you've got maybe a 3090, you'll be able to fine tune images on it. It might take a while, but it's actually accessible. What
2: what does fine tuning mean? Are you saying that I can actually like change the training? Yes. Even with my local resources? Oh, interesting.
1: So what you do is you take this gigantic 100,000 gigabytes of images And you compress it down to two gigabytes and this neural network of what's known as the latent spaces or hidden layers of meaning. You know, this is what a glass is, or a glass is that, or a glass is on the material. It understands things in context because it forms, again, these hidden layers of meaning. So I compress brain. Then what you can do is you can add neurons on. So you can fine-tune it, for example, on textures. And then you have a model that's texture-based. So we'll be releasing in the next few weeks things to be able to create textures or pixel-based art or watercolors or classical medieval paintings. It learns from those as you add it to the training data set over and over again. Again, it does require resource, but it will work on a 3090 NVIDIA graphics card, which I think is amazing because people will create their own sets. To create the base model, though, that foundation layer, foundation model, you do need a freaking great big supercomputer. Although, again, we took it down massively the amount of compute needed for this model. Other models we're training are far larger. Like our supercomputer is the 10th fastest public supercomputer in the world. But this one required like hundreds of thousands of dollars of compute versus the million or 10 million that other models did before.
2: I mean, in in the scheme of company financing, 100,000 sounds, I mean, the number of zeros makes a big difference.
1: Yeah, 100%. Again, like we have one of the fastest supercomputers in the world, so we can do massive model training. Um, But we wanted this to be accessible. And the model training code is out there so people can take it and train their own models from scratch. Or they can use our base and train new models. So like right now, as of today, someone just trained anime diffusion. So they took the mm. Danbaru data set and they created 75,000 images and they've implemented it there. That's now available to the world for a specific anime model. And we expect there to be a Ghanaian model, a Malawian model. You know, we expect there to be a model just for, I don't know, Fur, they would be furry kind of things. I'm sure people will make specific models. Like our business model itself is that we're going into content providers and we're saying, let's tell you static, boring content, intelligent. So you can have video game characters, you can have beloved IP, you can have all of Bollywood in custom models, and then you have a range of accessibility to content that's smart.
2: Can you lay out your specific vision for going back to the goods? You know, a lot of people focus on the bads, but you want to focus on the goods. What are the goods as you envision them? And in this week since it's been released, all these advances have come out. Is it what you expected? Um, Talk about your vision for why this is going to be brilliant and, and, and how you would put that in your own words.
1: I have a vision of an intelligent internet. Where every person, company, culture and country has their own AI across modalities, talking to each other, augmenting our potential. And it takes our combined information and compresses it to knowledge. And in our context, it gives wisdom. So we don't have that right now. We don't have anyone looking out for us. Instead, it's centralized and it flows through Facebook and others' pipes, right? So that's what I'm trying to make it. Make it so anyone can build these models for themselves, for their company, country, culture. And that's the big vision of the future. In the week that we've been week and a half, history launched. Maybe it's two weeks now. Actually, two weeks to the day. <laughs> I think we were meant to have this recording on the day of release, and it was a bit mad. Um, thank you guys <laughs> for rearranging. Uh, we've had 000, probably better
2: this
0: way. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we've had one hundred thousand developers downloading it, and amazing stuff from animation to being able to flip it and figure out the words that create an image, textual inversion, and all sorts of things have been created by the community, which we have supported. We supported people who use our API, don't use our API. It doesn't matter. A billion people are going to use this. because to put this in context, this wave of innovation has occurred with just 100,000 devs downloading it. 25 million downloaded our language models. Every dev in the world is going to be trying this out, and we're doing hackathons across the world, and it's just going to go exponential with the stuff that people create, especially because they realize this is like a little tiny file that's like a universal translator in a way. People are just putting words in and see it come out, but it's most powerful when it's in a pipeline. Like you think about it from a games development perspective. You don't call this all the time. You just call it for character creation, you know, or character adjustment or something like that. And you have this thing you can poke and then image of any type will come out the other side. How cool is that? And players can share it and all these other things because the same input going in, a couple of bytes, just a word sentence can create a masterpiece on the other side. How insane is that so i'm looking forward cool. to people pushing really the envelope and cool. having insane things and i reckon we can get this file down to 100 megabytes wow and get it to real time wow. as well They're really unusable. yeah one frame a second 24 frames a second 100 megabytes that's my target if you get that then you can create a movie wow. on the fly just from a description and you've seen that with like zander stewbridge he had 64 different prompts and it was the history of the world and that's all there was. And it had frame interpolation between the different prompts in the latent space. And it started from the Stone Age and it went to the year 3000 AD, like seamlessly from one to the other, just from 64 sentences. How cool is that?
2: That's incredibly cool. Amazing. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the other side of this debate, which is a lot of my friends have really polarized pretty quickly around the existence of these tools. There's... Um, a lot of people who feel kind of threatened by this, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've received a lot of email over the last two weeks about this sort of thing. Um, there now seem to be all sorts of um, people are creating all sorts of interesting positions, like I will, n- I will use this, but I will never use it to recreate the style of a living artist, or um, it's unethical to use generative AI art for reasons or whatever. And I was wondering. Um, What arguments have you heard? And um, are there any that you find um, persuasive or coherent, even if you don't agree with them specifically?
1: I think fears are understandable. Anytime you have a big change, there will always be fears. And you can't dismiss them out of turn. I think that it's a complex thing. And again, more voices need to be heard in this. Because previously it was just people deciding that you couldn't have the technology. Now the technology is out there. The question is, whose responsibility is it? We want to be a leading voice in having these discussions. So we're working with various parties on things like artist fingerprinting tools so they can opt out if they want. Because style isn't copyrighted, but you still might not want your style copied, you know? There are kind of other people who are saying that there are valid discussions around the dangers of this for misinformation and other things. What we're trying to focus on is building tools to combat misinformation and getting the awareness of this up. Because we know state actors have this. This is something we found with our language model papers, where a lot of the pushback was, what if this is used for bots? Well, guess what? The bad actors have the bots, and they had access to these models before they went open source. Open source kind of wasn't the thing. So I think that the main things here are that, you know, people feared for their livelihood. People feared for the negative impacts. Those are the two main arguments here. Uh, I think with the livelihood, there'll be brand new industries created from this. Like If you get in now, you're in the early doors of a technology is going from 5 million to a billion people and will be in everything we see. There's no way you won't make money off that if you're trying to make money and it automates the boring parts of art in some ways, uh, in my opinion. Again, we may disagree with that. I think that the nature of the negative stuff is I trust the community more than I trust large corporations and institutions to deal with that effectively. Like, I have a real large amount of trust in humanity, and again, we've seen people building all sorts of amazing stuff, and people using it for not safe work, but still legal stuff, you know? Like, again, it's up to us as a society to figure out what's good from bad, as opposed to it being decided for us, I think.
2: Um, And What is an example of something that you were surprised by, that you were also delighted by, that came out of this? Um, like like something like you would hold up as like this is a shining example of what our technology can do and it wasn't possible before
1: image to image taking children's little sketches and turning them into beautiful art is like one of the most amazing things That's cool. like seeing it live in front was of you was that planned? Place. no I didn't realize that it would be quite like that that you could just draw a basic shape and then all of a sudden boom or take like a Lego thing that you built and it becomes an entire scene in the style of GTA six or something like that. Like that was just awesome. Also the other side, turning images into text. I didn't think we'd get there quite so fast. We sponsored research in there, but now you can go both ways. And the probability of that's just mind boggling. You know, like uh, I posted a tweet. I was watching Silicon Valley on HBO and I was like, we've created a compression engine to create a new internet. Like I'm freaking Pied Piper in a way, if we can go both ways. <laughs> like, I hope I'm not early. You know? <laughs> Or Dinesh, absolutely. (laughs) Well,
0: Ahmad, I I wanted to ask you now about um, AI alignment. A lot of people are pretty concerned with AI aligned with human interest, and what could go wrong if that's not the case. Um, You know, you've pushed a lot of innovation in the space, which has made people more concerned because they think the timelines are scooting closer. uh, Up to you know, a lot of people think about 15 years away from human grade AGI, artificial general intelligence. What do you think about AI alignment? Um, How concerned should we be? And uh, if so, if you are concerned, what are you doing about it at Stability?
1: All right, so I think that's a great question. I think AI alignment is one of those difficult ones because you don't know it until you've seen it, and no one really knows what it looks like, right? So if you look at the metacalculus kind of projections for it, it's like just uh, five years out, ten years out. Nobody knows because the pace that we're going if I told you a year ago that you could make a cat night or whatever, or like the level of quality, you'd be like, nah, it wouldn't happen. Right. Like when GPT four hits and it can do AP bio exams or whatever it's going to do, you'd be like, wait, what? Like being able to solve IMO problems. Like I remember the initial math, but that was hard. And now kind of, they can do it without AI, Like in deep mind. crap! I think that um, the original Eleuther team kind of, some of them are with Stability now, and some of them went to set up Conjecture to do alignment as an alignment startup, similar to Anthropic. It's been a big focus of ours. But what I personally believe, and again, this is my personal belief, is that the best way to do alignment and reflect human values is to make it so AI is human in terms of the diversity of humanity, or humane, shall we say. So our approach has been to allow smaller models to be there for everyone, every person, culture, company, country, effectively, across the modalities. And the closest thing to here that I see is GATO. So GATO by DeepMind is a giant autoregressive model that's 1.3 billion parameters based on reinforcement learning things that shows elements of generalization. But if you don't have in your data set like Indian ethics and Chinese ethics and other things, what are you going to have, right? That's going to be very different to if you have a Western-oriented pile or common crawl or other things where you're stacking more layers. This is the, also the implication of the DeepMind chichilla scaling paper. So the naive interpretation of that is about train for more epochs till you get Chinchilla optimal kind of outcomes. And one of the things we're doing is chichilla optimal language model scaling suite. But... The real upshot of that is about better data. And what does the better data look like? So one of the things that we're doing is in our education initiative, you know, we're going, we've been educating kids in 13 months and one hour a day without internet in refugee camps. We're getting the remit to educate millions of children, and we're going to build the best open source system, inviting the world to do that. But the output of that data is also ideal for creating better AI models that reflect local diversity and culture, because it learns how to learn. And if you've got that happening across the world, I think you're much better to ha- likely to have more aligned outcomes than if you've just got one type of data set, which is the internet. And our internet has been optimized for engagement, outrage, and negative things because those are the things that sell ads. So we need to create better data sets that are more diverse, better models that are more diverse, and then we're less likely to all be paper clipped and die, which would be great.
0: That, that that really would be great if we we avoid that. Um, I, I, I'm curious, it seems like One of the next big challenges is going to be, you know, where do you get data from? uh, You know, Lars and I, Lars has talked about this a lot. Like, uh, what happens when you kind of run out of data that's available on the internet? Like, what do you do next and how these things can kind of be put together? Lars, do you want to talk about that a little bit? You might be able to frame this question well.
2: Yeah, there's two kind of aspects to it. It's like, one, you know, I feel like you mentioned chinchilla. And um, there was an article in Less Wrong by Nostalgia Braced about uh, chinchilla's wild implications kind of implying that, it might actually be the case that we're now data-bound rather than scale-bound. Um, you know, that instead of just stacking more and more layers, that things are going to go more in the direction of you need more data and better quality data, um, and that's where the returns to AI. Do, do you agree with that assessment, or is there more to it than that?
1: No, I agree 100%. I think you're seeing the last elements of kind of scale-pilling, as it were. So OCC-Palm, and then there's a big some big models coming, shall we say that show generalization above a trillion parameters. But they're not flexible and dynamic enough. So one of the things about putting out our models is that a lot of people will use it and then combine them in different ways to have various outcomes. But it's about data quality because we've moved from big data, which then targets Will or Lars, et cetera, to big models that use structured data. And we've seen elements of improvement in that for extension. This is why, again, at Eleuther, built the pile, built Lion 400M and then 5B at Lion. Um, moving to more structured ones will lead to better results because it's, again, reflective of humanity. If you just sit down in front of a TV all day and you absorb information, it's great. But if you have a structured lesson that's optimized, it's always better. And that's what we need to kind of learn and train on. That's why, like I said, our approach is that we build national-level models with open data sets for each country In the middle, we go to the broadcasters and IPs and other content and build models for all of these companies and corporations. And from bottom up, we build educational models for Malawi, for Bangladesh, for other countries, where it learns how to learn between 5 and 18, because that's the best to teach. In fact, it's reinforcement learning with human feedback, right? So GPT-3 is 175 billion parameters. When you see how it's used, because it's about how you use the models, not how the models use you now, you can compress it down to 1.3 billion parameters, which is what you use in the OpenAI API. And we've got a whole lab around this on contrastive learning called CARPA that really focuses on these elements to build our new code models and other things that we have coming out.
2: What about the other aspect of data is when... um, So there's this notion of, I use the metaphor of pre-1945 steel, which is that steel manufactured after 1945 has radiation in it um, because of atomic bomb tests. And so for certain applications, there's certain kinds of steel that you have to go back and source historical steel to use because only those don't have the radiation. Silver didn't use to tarnish before the Industrial Revolution because now there's too much sulfur in the atmosphere. So I, I use this to draw a metaphor between pre-2021 data, right? Because, or, or at least in the domain of art, because now stability.ai and um, Dolly and all this are now adding AI-generated art into the data sets. And before that, you just scrape the internet for images. You can assume that they're not created by AI. After the inflection point, they are. Is there any kind of danger of stagnation or weird kind of effects on your model now that you're consuming your model's own output?
1: Well, we did that for stable diffusion. So stable diffusion alpha was led to the Simulacrobot aesthetic data set. So we got people to rate the outputs, and then we fed that back into the model. That's why it's so aesthetic and it's compressed. You know, we had an element of kind of RLHF at the end, effectively. Um, Just like some of the new upcoming big models from people that will not be named had that as the final steps. Instruct elements really help guide the final part of tuning for these models. So models are dogfooding them, previous elements, as it were. Going forward, this explosion of images that you see it's not about amount of data. It's about the structure of the data. Again, if you look, for example, at Luther AI releasing the pile, the pile was nearly a terabyte of highly structured data, archive and PubMed and things like that. That's been used by Microsoft and Nvidia and dozens of others because it's actually bothered to be structured. You don't need terabytes. Like how many terabytes of things do we have? We have massive amounts. It's about structured data, and that was highly structured and better than Common Crawl that was used in the original GPT-2 and to an element GPT-3. GPT-3 had some data structuring there. So, so by structure, you mean,
2: you mean clean, you mean clean, clean data specifically, right? Clean data,
1: similar to how... Organized. One of the things we then did is we took the aesthetic scoring of this data set that we released to Bot Captions... And we used a clip model to figure out the aesthetic subset of Lion Two B two billion images, which was six hundred million images that were aesthetic, because things like PowerPoint slides are not aesthetic. But it does catch other things, like Pokemon are not aesthetic. So it's very bad at Pokemon. <laughs> as an example, <laughs> you, need to fi- you need to fine-tune them back in. They can look kind of ugly. Let's face it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, but but for fa- faces and things, it's very good because that's what people and cats. It's very good at cats. Yeah. Um, so when you so, talk,
2: so when you talk about diversity and stuff, you know, aesthetics is this highly subjective field. Like, is the answer there to create a lot of different models that are are fine tuned on people who think Pokemon are the most beautiful images in the world?
1: Yes, the the way is to allow a diversity of models as opposed to have one model that tries to capture diversity. So the way that Dali Two has tried to do it is they randomly add for non gendered words genders and races, so you'll get a female Indian sumo wrestler if you type in sumirisla, which could exist, but, you know, probably not many of them, to be honest. Um, whereas if you have a well, normal... Like, like, they
2: literally, like they literally just add the words to the end of your prompt silently, semi-randomly?
1: Yes. You can do that because you can say "sign a man with a sign holding up and then it will say, like, black or Latin American and things like that because the system picks up on those words.
2: Oh, that's hilarious. Interesting. Yeah.
1: I mean, when you look at stable diffusion output, it is the raw output of the model because we wanted to see how people did that before we added all the extra bits. Mid-journey takes stable diffusion or latent diffusion and then adds processing steps on the front and processing steps inside. Similarly, Dall-E does both of those. So when you use stable diffusion correctly, you see something like mid-journey beta, which is beautiful and amazing, you know? Um, but we don't want to filter inputs and outputs. We leave that up to the end-day user. But then like I said, it's going to move from people using it to people creating their own. Especially stable diffusion 1.4 isn't really what you should be fine-tuning on, because in the next few months you'll get version two and version three and stabler diffusion. Um, stabler Diffusion is probably what you should start training on, to be honest. Like this is just a test at the moment. But this diversity again, we can think about it this way. Data has three you have data, information, and then you have knowledge, and then you have wisdom. That's the way that I kind of put it. So the 100,000 gigabytes of images that we have from T B for the initial training set, that's information. It compressed into knowledge because it figures out the interconnections and latent spaces between words. But the wisdom comes from how you use it to figure out your own aesthetic and your own context, whether that's as a person or a community or something else. And then you create your anime model or your textile model or something else. And that means that then when you combine these models together, you can learn from them. So it's like you put out the framework, and then you bring it all back in to create a more generalized model that's based on the sub-model data sets. It's almost a trainer model kind of thing to kind of teach a student. Um, but then also it's very reminiscent to kind of the MOE approach, right? And this is why some of the more interesting architectures coming out have gone back to kind of MOE from kind of highly uh, condensed model architectures.
2: So one of my thoughts here is... Um you know, it's accelerating so fast. Like after you release this, all these applications come out. I'm most interested in how this gets used in pipelines, right? We're already seeing Photoshop plugins where someone's like, give me this, give me that, then put them together, erase, infill, outfill, you know. Um, is it going to be possible um, for this to be used in video and animation? Like, am I going to be able to create a model sheet of a character have it understand that the the cheekbones look like this and there's always exactly this many eyelashes and little details like that, and then be able to, you know, get a walk cycle, do things like that, animate on twos, animate on ones, those sorts of... Are we going to be able to fine-tune it to that degree or is there going to have to be a lot of tooling in the middle to handle that sort of deal?
1: It's both, right? You can actually literally create anything with it now because you have a generalized text-to-image architecture but also image-to-text architecture. So if you utilize something like style clip or something like that, um, you can kind of do dynamic adjustments. But being able to understand what in an image is what, you will move to the point where you don't need to have fingers anymore. <laughs> you can just say, I want this adjusted in this way, and then it will adjust it just like the neural filters in Adobe Photoshop. Right? For the animation architectures and things like that, again, we already have examples of being able to use codecs and other code models to build stuff in Blender. You know, what is a 3D file? A GLB file is a JSON plus a bunch of flat textures. And then we also have kind of text to NERF. So I think all these architectures being able to go from 2D to 3D to animated, they're all there. Dream Studio already has animation inbuilt because the team that built it are the same team that's building Majesty Diffusion, Disco Diffusion and all of these. So I included a example on my Twitter of a sneak peek of the animation features that can do 120 frames every four seconds to create seamless animations of some of these things. But it's not integrated the um, kind of dynamic prompt analysis, the ability to do in-painting with just targeted things as opposed to drawing. These will all evolve, and again, people will mix and match the pipeline so they have different models for different things. This is also important because one of the things I recommended to people is the stable diffusion model has a very small clip, uh, we have a bit G coming out this week and then a bit H. That will make it go way beyond Dali 2. Why don't you use it with a model with a different architecture like the VAE architecture that you've got in Cryon or Dali Mini? Use that as the first step and then use Stable Diffusion as the second step. Hard Marrow and others have shown what type of amazing output you can get. Do multi-step outputs with the best models there and then do dynamic targeting of these various elements to do text to 3D mesh and other things. And you can use existing libraries then. Don't try to one-shot everything. Or even try to two-shot everything. Just be intelligent right. and realize what it is is this translation engine.
2: Right. So you've built all this amazing technology and then you've you've made it open within the confines of how that's possible within this sort of technology. Um, can you describe a little bit about how your business actually works? You know, obviously Google and the others have decided that it's best to keep it closed and Sassified SAAS software as a service for the audience, you know. Um, but what what is your plan to turn this into into a you know, sustainable business.
1: So for example, we announced our Indian partnership with Eros last week. We have an exclusive partnership on all Bollywood assets. And we're going to turn it all intelligent nice. to have dynamic Bollywood things. So you can create your own Bollywood music videos and audio and images. And we have a revenue share on that. We have world-class awesome. industrial APIs. So if you want to do a hundred images in four seconds, you can do that for your API, which you can't do on your local GPU, but for G- dream studio, the next version of it, you'll be able to use your local GPU or the cloud GPU with our brand new interface. So we've got a product strategy, which is some amazing products like Dream Studio for animation and prosumers. Um, we have a API strategy where we have some of the biggest companies in the world plugging into our API and lots of announcements on that. And we will be the lowest cost API provider because we've got that scale. Plus, you get the latest models from our API before they're released. So I think today we're releasing 1.5 via the API. In a couple of weeks, we'll release that public. we just got a few things to sort. But then version 3 will be short after and things like that, plus our specified in-painting models and other things, plus brand models from various brands that you can incorporate. Those won't be open source because they're not benchmark models. They're just fine-tunes that we did like anyone else. But we have a commitment to releasing the benchmark models to build the ecosystem within a couple of weeks You know, of them being available. So, And then the final thing, like I said, is this forward-deployed thing. If you are a brand with an asset like a game studio or a luxury brand or a cartoon or something like that. You can train your own model, but that's hard. So just, we can go in and train it for you. And then we support the community in training their own models. And then people will build businesses for the SME sector, training models for that. And then that will be available through our marketplace. Stability approved models, effectively.
0: That's great. That's
1: great. Uh, Aman, I'm curious,
0: what do the next 10 years look like for, you know, stability AI? You know, what do you want that to look like? Do you foresee just you know running this for a long time? Do you have any big goals within the next decade?
1: Yes, in the next decade, every child should have access to the absolute best education, healthcare, and resources that they need. Um, Like I want every country to be running on open source, intelligent architecture to make people happier. Full stop. I think we'll have real time, ready player one type experiences for people who want to share and communicate, and it's going to be freaking awesome. that's kind of it. I love it. I love it.
2: So one question is about your educational stuff. We, we, we've kind of zipped by in the middle while we've also been talking about kind of kind of very narrowing in on the AI art stuff. So you've got these, have you got an actual educational platform that you've released now or is that still in the works?
1: We have, we've been deploying it for years. So we have uh, randomized control trials with the United Nations and UNICEF and the International Rescue Committee and others showing efficacy of 76% of children in refugee camps get literacy and numeracy in 13 months and one hour a day. And now the remit is to take that and invite the world to say, if you have an entire country, and we can't say which one just yet, um, but it's been mentioned in some places, or multiple, as we will have, to educate and you control the hardware, software, deployment, and curriculum to a degree, how can you give them the biggest potential and make them happiest? And I think that's something a lot of people will be interested in, uh, participating in as a global project. And you know that will be better than what we have right now because what we have is non-personalized education, non-feedback education. Um, So we have a platform now that's dumb and still does great. So let's make it smart and help them achieve their potential.
2: Right. So how do you feel about intellectual property in your brave, new, artificially intelligent world. You know, part of your message has been, you don't want to be closed, You don't want to be open. The old companies want to basically create a mainframe that you connect to, to do your AI. You're talking more about the people sort of owning the AIs and, um, rather than have one that purports to do everything, have diverse models, Uh, how, how does intellectual property fit into this? Who owns this stuff? Who owns the data? Who owns the models? Um, in uh, as, as you see it, if, if you just wave a magic wand?
1: So our benchmark models on the country and international level, that's based on open data sets and mining of public information, right? Along with UK and EU laws that are very specific on that. But then the individual person's models, that's their own data. You know, That's their own copyright and things like that. The companies that we go into, the output is owned by that company and then licensed. So if you want to use Bollywood stuff, they retain the license, but they license it to you to use in Photoshop to have that dramatic picture of Shah Rukh Khan or whatever, you know? So that's the vision that I have, whereby ownership goes back to the individual and the company. It's retained there. If you use stuff that's copyrighted, if you create stuff that's copyrighted, just like in Paint Shop or some or Paint or something like that, and you try and sell it, then you're violating copyright, you know? And then Disney will come after you if you do Mickey Mouse or whatever. Again, do things that are right, but at least they'll now be licensed options, And I think, this is the thing, when you have infinite abundance, you need to have an element of authenticity. So this is why I don't think it's NFTs, it's maybe something else, or maybe it is NFTs, you know, in terms of just that shortcut to support. Because right now what we did, we went to infinite abundance with things like Spotify, uh, took the music thing, for example, you have a million listens and you get $2,000. That's not right. There have to be better ways to create this, make it dynamic, make it intelligent. I don't think you need blockchains. Maybe we just need to have a trusted protocol. Um, but you know, that's something that's a little far away. Let's get people building models versus the primitives and then figure out how to get them to talk to each other. I love
0: it. I love it. Well, Ahmad, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you? Where should we send them?
1: Uh, so you can go to stability.ai. There's our communities there. So you know we have Harmony coming online this month for music. We're going to release our first models there, Dance Diffusion, in a couple of weeks. Uh, Lion for images, Eleuther for language, Open bioml for our protein folding and other work, and many other communities kind of coming up. Uh, yeah, well, our socials are all going live and you can find it from there, or you can just bother me on Twitter. Awesome. Well. And of That's course, cute. the Stable Diffusion Discord. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, please join, it's fun.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, man. We really appreciate it.
2: Thanks very much.
1: No Everyone, thank you guys. Bye.
0: Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.